And today's scripture comes from John 17, verses 1 through 5, and I will be reading from the ESV version. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of God. Hi, guys. So two weeks ago, last week, Jeannie and Matthew, our elder Matthew, they did a wonderful job of, you know, it's sad to see them go, but I'm really excited how God will use them this next season. Um, but before, before their testimony, a week before that, we started a, a short series titled Praying Like Jesus. And, and if you know anything about Jesus' ministry, if you read through the Gospels, <clears throat> whether it's Matthew, Mark, John, Luke, one thing that is very clear is that the ministry of Jesus was marked by this vibrant prayer life. In fact, if you hear Jesus' prayer with the Father, there was never a time right, throughout the gospel where Jesus was not in communication with his own Father. And Jesus, actually, Jesus began his ministry with prayer. In the most pivotal moments of his life and ministry, he prayed. And at the end of his life, as he hung on that tree, that Roman cross, the last words that he, he, he spoke were prayers to his Father. So it's very clear that prayer was a huge part of the way Jesus did his, lived his life and did his ministry. Yet, yet only very few times in the Gospels, throughout the Gospels, all four of them, we actually get access to the actual words of these prayers that Jesus prayed to the Father. You don't see a, lo you don't see a lot, actually. Jesus, the, the Gospel writers tell us Jesus went away and prayed, Jesus prayed, yet we only get very few occasions where we actually hear the actual words of Jesus praying. Which actually makes our passage today, John 17, we're going to be in this chapter for the next three weeks. This makes John 17 wonderfully unique. Because unlike other instances, in this incident, we actually get the full script, 26 verses, and Jesus knows that his disciples are hearing him pray, and he does it. So it's very intentional that this is not only Jesus connecting with the Father, but also it's a teaching moment for his disciples. John Knox, a great reformer, the guy who started the Presbyterian Church movement in Scotland, he says this about John 17. He says, John 17 is the holy of holies. Here in John 17 the curtain is finally un unveiled for us to see. And we actually get to see the inter interaction between the Son and the Father. And this is just moments before, hours before he's arrested. He goes to fulfill his final mission, the cross. Also, John 17 is part of Scripture that has been coined as farewell discourse. Farewell discourse. 
um, which includes, which begins in John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, towards the end of John. Here, Jesus knows just in few hours that his disciples will have to carry on the ministry of Jesus, the movement, without him. So really, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, what we know as farewell discourse, is a sort of final ministry boot camp. Anyone done boot camp? Like coders, you did boot camp. It's sort of the ministry boot camp where Jesus catches them up. He says, you got to know all of these things. Time is short, and I want to teach you these important truths about the kingdom of God. So in chapter 13, Jesus begins this, this final sort of boot camp by washing the feet of his disciples. We see that. And he reminds them once again that he will be betrayed. Very soon he will be betrayed, betrayed by one of the disciples taken and put on that Roman cross. Yet what's interesting in, in John 13 is his disciples don't seem to quite understand even after Jesus tells them again and again what's about to take place, they just don't seem to quite get it. John 14 and 15, next, next two chapters, Jesus tells them that he is the only way, the truth and the life, and he is divine, and, and they are his branches, and without him, no one can bear any fruit. And John 16, next chapter, he reassures them, though in this world you will have troubles anyone had rough week troubles at work troubles at home car breaks down financial issues relationships you will have troubles but jesus says, take heart for i have overcome the world and it's following these wonderful teachings in john 13 14 15 16 we come to John 17, and this is sort of how Jesus ends this boot camp, ends this, uh, this whole teaching session by praying in front of his disciples, praying to the Father. And today we're going to look at the first five verses of John 17. And verse 1 says, When Jesus has spoken these words, all these wonderful teachings, washing feet, I'm the truth, way, and the life, without me you cannot bear fruit, don't worry, you're going to have troubles, but I have overcome the world. And, and by, after teaching all these wonderful things, John tells us he lifted up his eyes and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Every time John, in the Gospel, in the gospel of John, Jesus mentions this, this phrase, the hour or the time, He's referring to only one thing, one event, his final mission, right? His work on the cross. We know that very clearly. Throughout John, this idea of the hour, the time comes over and over again. Jesus says, my time has not come. My time is not here. My time is near. My time is now here. And every time he says that, he's talking about his, his final mission, right? His, his death, that he has to die in order to save mankind, in verse 3, he makes it abundantly clear, right? And this is eternal life. The hour has come, and only through the hour we're going to have eternal life. And what is eternal life? Jesus says, eternal life is this, that they know you, Father, the only true God, and they know me, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. How can those who were once enemies of God come to know God like what Jesus says in verse 3, 
It's through Jesus' obedience. So when Jesus asks the Father to glorify Him, in verse 2, in verse 1, He is praying, Father, not make me great, make me famous, make me successful. It's, he's praying, Father, send me to my death. That's what he's praying. The hour has come. Glorify me so that I may glorify you. He's saying, Father, send me to my death. Send me to the cross. Send me so that others can gain life through me. You see here, Jesus is not asking for some type of honor or recognition or resolution or even some type of authority. No, he knows what's about to happen. He knows what's about to go down. And here, as he begins this prayer, he is agreeing with the Father. Often when you and I come to God in prayer, maybe you came early and you were praying, or you were doing devotional this week and you were praying. Often when we come to God in prayer, we are quick to give Him a list of things we want Him to accomplish for us. And our idea of glory, when you see the word glory in verse 1, when you hear the word glory, what do you think about? Our idea of glory is very often very different from what Jesus is asking in this text. Here, Jesus, again, is agreeing with the Father earlier in the Garden of Gethsemane. According to the Gospel of Luke, Jesus made it abundantly clear that He wished that there was another way to save God's people. He says, Father, is there any other way? If there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. Let me not go to the cross. He prayed over and over again what he desired. Yet both at the end of that prayer in the garden and here in our passage, Jesus concludes the prayer by saying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Your will be done. Your will be done. Not what I want out of life, but what you want from me. Not what I would like out of marriage and relationships and parenting, or whatever you're praying for now, but yours be done. Not what I want out of my company or career, but yours be done. Philip Yancey, a wonderful Christian author, he, he wrote wonderful books about suffering and how to walk through suffering. He wrote a, another book on prayer, titled Prayer. And, and the subtitle says, does it make any difference? Like when, when you and I, I mean, we think about this, right? When, when we look at the scripture, when we see these passages and encouragement for us to pray, I mean, we also think, if God knows all things, He knows me, He knows my problems, He knows what I need, do we really need to ask? Like us coming to God in prayer, does it really make a difference? In the end, which, won't God just do things according to His good will and purposes? Yancey, Philip Yancey argues in that book, you don't even have to buy the book, this is basically his main point. It's a great book, you should, you should buy it, but this is his main point. He says it absolutely does. Prayer does make a huge difference. It makes all the difference in the world, but not in the way, he says, not in the way we think it does. Yancey says, prayer isn't simply about you and I coming to God with a list of things we want from God. Instead, the greater gift of prayer, the greater reason why we have prayer 
is that it helps us to see reality from God's perspective. It helps us to see reality from God's point of view. You see, for Jesus, every time he knelt and looked up to heaven to seek the Father, it was always about not what he had wanted, but it was always about knowing and experiencing and aligning himself to the will of the Father. So friends, we, we, we will never pray verse 1 because we are not saviors of the world. If you are, you know, we need to talk. Right? We are not Jesus. We are not saviors of the world. Through our death, we will not be able to save other people. Yet what we could glean from this prayer is, is that when you and I come to God in prayer, yes, we are invited to come and lay down our fears and worries and mistrust and, 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 and ask Him for things that we need. That's Scripture. God says, come and ask. We could come to Him with our needs, situation at work, conflicts with people in your life, marriage that seems, that, that seems to be falling apart, relational conflicts, parenting challenges. Anyone? Parenting challenges is real. Man, my daughter is turning like seven and it's already hard. Finances, whatever that is, we could come to Him and ask. That's what the Scripture says. Yet as you ask, I think one thing that we can glean from this prayer of Jesus is that it's not simply about coming to God with the list of our needs. It's also when we pray, creating intentional space to align ourselves with how God sees our situation, to align our plans with His, to listen and allow the Spirit of God to reveal what he really thinks about what we're going through. And when we approach God with this willingness to listen, prayer does something far more profound than merely giving us a sense of blessing or, or giving us things that we need. Prayer, when, when we approach prayer in this way, not just coming to God with a list of things that we want, but coming to Him to understand life, understand our situation, coming to Him to listen, it helps us to see life from His perspective. It prompts us to see others, even those that drive us crazy, even those that we do not want to live among, even those that we just want to part ways it prompts us to see even those people differently the way God sees them. It even allows us to see ourselves the way God sees us. I mean, I think that's important, right? No matter how you feel about yourself, you could be overconfident or you could be beating yourself up all the time. We need to come to God in prayer so that God will reveal to us how He sees us, how He feels about us. And that will change the way you treat yourself. That will change the way you treat other people. That will change the way you treat your spouse and your coworkers and your kids. Relational conflicts are everywhere. I mean, in every area of our lives, there, there is bound to be relational conflicts. We're humans, we're broken, we're selfish. So wherever your relational conflicts, I have relational conflicts, you know, everywhere. 
And, and, and whenever we face these relational conflicts, whether it's at home, whether it's at work, whether it's random person, the parking ajushi, I always have relational conflicts with parking guys. Um, our prayer may simply be, God, take, take me away from this situation, or God, give me a new job, God, give me a new boss, or God, give me a, a new marriage. Maybe. Yet what God may want from us as we, as we pray and come to Him with this request to remove us from that situation, God may want something far different than what we think. God may say, stick it out. Stick it out, Sangmin. Be in that relationship. Show compassion. Forgive. Learn to redeem that relationship. I think, you know, what I realize today, when I think about how, how people relate to one another, if it doesn't work, people are ready to quit. I mean, I, I realize much more than our parents' generation. Like, my parents, I realized, when we talk about conflict and, and issues and challenges, uh, difference between my mom and I, I don't want to hang out with people I don't like. My mom, she doesn't mind it. It doesn't bother as much. And I realized because in that generation, they were more than willing to work out relationships. But I feel like today, if you don't understand my how I am built, if you don't understand how I feel, if you don't get me, I don't want to hang out with you. I think that's in me. I think that's... In this, in this culture, it's very easy to just cancel people out. Just cancel and, and find new people. Move and find new group of people. But again, maybe God is not desiring that in our lives. Uh, another thing, another reason why we can come and ask for God's will versus ours is this, this thing of trust. As I was, we were singing this song and I just wrote it down. I just said trust, right? I'm a dad of two daughters. And, you know, my, my, my two daughters, are like first one, she's eight. And she now uh, no, wants things her way. She has her own philosophy and ideas, right? The, 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 the biggest, like the main argument that we have in our, in, our, in our home right now between her and I is whenever I'm trying to convince her of an idea, like, this is, this is how you should do it because this is good. And, and my, my first daughter would say, well, dad, dad, that's you, but that's not me. Like, I'm my own person. I have my own idea of what is good and what is not. And I'm like, dude, you're seven. What do you know about life, right? Like, that's what I think. I want to be like, okay, bring, bring, bring the stick. Bring the meme. Um, but, you know, the moments I, 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 that as a dad, I, you know, like, like, being a dad is tough. Being a mom is tougher, I think. Um, but those sweet moments, these interactions, the, the, the sweetest moments are like, for me, one, they're sleeping and I'm just watching them. But two, when we're having this conversation, uh, this is not common, but in those rare times, Emma would be like, Dad, you choose. Dad, you, you tell me what to watch because I trust you. And I'm just like, oh, I love that, right? My daughter trusts me. And in a simple way with God, Jesus is able to pray, Lord, your will, not mine, because there is this sense of trust. God, I trust you. The problem, I think, for, for, for many of us, even for me, when the hard thing about praying, God, your will versus mine, deep down inside, it's about trust. We don't really trust God. I, a lot of times, I don't think I trust God. I say I do. I act like I do. 
boy, when push comes to shove, a lot of times I'm bullish on the way how, how I want life to turn out because there's this lack of trust that God is a good father who's going to take care of us. But Jesus is no problem because even though Jesus knows he's about to face the most gruesome death, the most, most, most painful separation with the Father, he knows in the end God's going to restore him and there's going to be restoration of this relationship. It's a trust. And second thing, and the last thing that we, I want to glean from this prayer is not only does Jesus pray for God's will, like we talked about, he also prays for God's glory. We touched on this earlier, but let me just dig a little bit deeper. Every great prayer in Scripture, if you look through great prayers in the Scripture, whether that's Moses, whether that's David, Jesus, Paul, other guys, they have this one thing in common. Every great prayer in the Scripture asks God for His glory. Right? Exodus 33, Moses asks God, God, I want to see your glory. Yeah, our people need food. Yeah, we want to get to the promised land. But in the end, it's about your glory. Jesus in our passage, he says, glorify me so that I can glorify you. Even through my death, I'm going to bring you glory. Paul in Ephesians 1 Right, 16 to 23, he, he speaks of this glory and his desires that people will know the glory of God. So, so when, when we survey the scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, one thing that is abundantly clear is that we serve and we follow God who loves his own name. We talked about this two weeks ago when we we're in Luke 11. Right, the, the parable of the friend in the midnight. We talked about this parable isn't about the person outside and their persistence. It's not about us convincing God by our persistence to give us what we need. If you really unpack this parable, it's really about the person inside, God himself. When we come to God and ask of him and his great name, God who's inside will do everything he can in his own power to honor his own name. And throughout the Old Testament passages, it's very clear that God loves to honor his name and he will do everything possible to not bring any shame to his name. So, 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 so we see that in the play. And, and so in verse 2, when Jesus says, send me to my death for your glory... For this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. What Jesus is saying, what Jesus is teaching us through this confession is that what you and I need, friends, what you and I need, the most urgent thing that you and I need today, the most urgent thing that the world needs today is the glory of God. And this is what Jesus is asking of the Father. To show me your glory, to, to reveal your glory. And this is what Paul prayed in, in, to the, for the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1.16. I have it on the screen for you. Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. What is Paul's most urgent prayer in verse 17? That the God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, 
may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. enlightened. So Paul prays, above all, I pray for you guys that you guys would see the glory of God. Why? Why is it so important to, to see the glory of God? Why, why do I say the most urgent thing that you and I need today is to experience the glory of God? It's because when we fail to live in the reality of God's glory, we will always be, be tempted to live for the glory of something else. At a, at a foundational level, right, we've been created for God's glory. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3 makes it very clear. God created the garden. God created humanity in his image. And he, his intention was for us to live in that garden in this wonderful relationship for humans to be able to worship and glorify God. Where we were created to find joy and glory in God. Yet when sin entered creation in Genesis 3, the devastating impact of sin or the devastating lie that Satan lied to, to Eve and Adam was the fact that you could actually find glory in something else other than God. So when we look at passages like Exodus 32, the, the moment Moses, he's leading the Israelites and he goes up to receive these commandments from God, people get anxious. Moses is delayed in, in Exodus 32. People get anxious and people call, call Aaron and says, Aaron, come. I don't know what happened to this fellow Moses. Come, make us God so that we can worship. So Aaron, because of the pressure of people, he throws a bunch of just gold into fire and out came this sort of Catholic-looking thing, and, and people worshipped and sinned. That, that Exodus 32 isn't this crazy story of people making this weird thing and worshipping. It's really human nature. What, what this, the, the biblical author is trying to teach us is that this is human nature. This is not just the Israelites, but this is what we do with life. Friends, why are we so anxious why do we worry so much about things that really won't matter a year from now or five years from now? Why are we so restless? Why is it so hard for us to trust and obey God? Friends, our problem isn't simply we want more money or we want greater sense of achievement or we want a bigger house or a nicer car. At the foundational level, we don't have money problem. We don't have relationship problem. It's glory problem. And it's this, we've talked about this in the beginning of the year. It's this living without realizing the awe of God. It's living awelessly. So when we come to God, you know, we are encouraged by Jesus to pray. Your glory, God. Glorify me so that I could glorify you. And, 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 and friends, I know I need this, right? Because when I don't have it, when I'm not living in the fear and the reality of God's glory, I can tell you, praying, teaching, shepherding, like even doing this, it feels like a job. Even this week, as I was preparing for this, 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 this sermon, 
it felt like I was preparing a speech. Like, I, I've done this for now five years every week, so I'm like, okay, I could put together a sermon. I, could, I need intro. I need exposition. What is this text saying? And I realized as I was prepping, God convicted me like, dude, you're preparing this sermon like it's, a, it's some kind of TED Talk. This is my word. And I, man, I was like, Lord, I'm sorry. Even when we were singing, I was like, I'm sorry. I, I need to live in the glory of God because it, it could go very wrong. Many, many pastors, many, many wonderful leaders in the church, we struggle with this. It's not easy. This is hard. So let's pray today, friends, as we, as we look at John 17. Let's pray. Show us your glory, God. Show me your glory. Glorify me so that you will be glorified. But I want to warn us, because this is not an easy prayer to pray. When we, when we pray, God, your glory, your will, this is not easy. Because when we pray this, when we are earnestly seeking this in our lives, what we are saying is we are willing to lay down our plans, our vision, our way of life for His. Really, the prayer that we see that Jesus prays in, in verses 1 to 5 is a prayer of surrender. Surrendering how he wants to see life. And this is also when we say, God, your will, your glory, we're also surrendering. Surrendering our grip on life. Again, this is not easy because God's way of glorifying himself through your life may look very different from what you want out of life. Let me repeat myself. This is hard prayer because God's way of glorifying himself through your life may look very different from what you want out of life. Those are not always the same thing. I wish it was. I wish God's glory was like my Tesla and my nice, nice house. And I wish all of these things, but it's not always, it doesn't work always like that. I share a little bit of my story maybe a couple of weeks ago. Out of college, right, out of being an immigrant home and growing up poor, at least, at least not as wealthy as my, my other rich friends, you know, all I wanted to do was, was, was do well in life, right? I, I thought I'll work hard, start my own businesses, marry this wonderful woman, have 2.5 kids and have a nice house in the suburbs and, 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 and retire at age 45. That's, that's really literally what I thought. I'll retire at 45, take care of my parents, serve God through, through the finances. Then 2007, right, out of college, God got a hold of this 27-year-old punk kid, orange hair, riding motorcycle to church, earrings I was just I was just a mess dude it wasn't even it wasn't even cool it was like I look back to these pictures I'm like oh my goodness what was I doing um and God got a hold of that 25 year old kid and then I remember in, in 27 28 just everything that, that that was being preached everything that I was reading just spoke to me and I said God whatever you want I quit my job I'll move out of my house whatever you want I'll move to Cambodia for a little bit whatever you want And that completely changed sort of the, I, I'm, I'm, I'm nowhere near retirement. I need to get a second job to be able to retire like 70, right? So I'm no, nowhere near retirement. Complete change 
the trajectory of my life. Last 15 years of following Christ has been wonderful, but it has, it had, it has had its ups and downs. It has not been easy. You ask anyone who's walked with the Lord more than a year, more than two years, they'll tell you it hasn't always been easy. Following Jesus, I would say, some, you know, in some ways, it might be much easier not to follow Jesus and just live your life if what you want out of life is different from what God wants from your life. In fact, if, if God had told me 25 or 15 years ago to that 25-year-old punk kid how things were going to be played out for the next 15 years, you're going to go to seminary, you're going to diminish, you're going to plant a church, you're going to go through this, you're going to experience this. I could honestly tell you, I would have ran. I would have been like, no, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. That sounds, that sounds crazy, God. Yet I could also testify, and I'm just being, re- I'm being real, as I've stayed on course through the joys and the challenges of life and ministry, what God has given me is far greater than any of, any of the wishes and dreams I had when I was 25. So friends, when we come to God in prayer, start with these two requests. God, not my will, your will. Not my glory, but your glory. Friends, this is the gospel. Jesus prayed in our passage, Father, send me to my death. Send me to my humiliation. Send me to my suffering for your glory. So you and I, who were enemies of God, they're sitting here today, who were once enemies of God, can find forgiveness and find life through Him. Eternal life, friends. What is eternal life? Verse 3, it's simple. Eternal life, it couldn't get more simpler than this. Eternal life, meaning of life, true life, is that you and I know the Father. And that we know Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this prayer. What an amazing access that we've been given to hear you and your son speak at such a pivotal moment of ministry. And Lord, this is a a challenging prayer. As we think about prayer, prayer is already challenging. And now to pray these things, we need courage. We need, uh, we need to really deeply understand who you are and what you have accomplished for us. So Lord, as we come to you with our challenges, with our wishes, with our desires, about our children, about our marriage, about whatever, we will start in this, give us courage to start in this place. Lord, your will, not mine, your glory. And even if your glory, bringing you glory through my life may look different from what I want, Lord, I want your glory. Because that is eternal. That is eternal life. Thank you. We love you. Just send me pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.